I'm finding as I get older, I struggle a little bit more with time than I used to. Um, used to be, um, you know, someone say that was 40 years ago. I think, okay, 50s, 60s. Okay, uh, 40 years ago was the 80s. And, and I hear that. I'm like, what? You know? Um, I remember the 80s very clearly, you know? Um, let, let, me, let me just uh, read a couple of these. You, some of you have probably come across these, but some of these things that kind of illustrate perhaps our struggle with time. See if you struggle with some of these facts. Um, the fax machine was invented while people were still traveling the Oregon Trail. Okay. I think, I think most of us, when we think Oregon Trail, we're thinking, you know, covered wagon, all that other stuff, fax machine. Those certainly did not exist then, but they did. Um, there are actually whales alive today that are older than the book Moby Dick. Okay. Anyone over the age of 45, and probably go uh, younger than that now, has seen the world population double in their lifetime. Um, Oxford is older than the Aztec monuments down in uh, Mexico. Um, do we have anybody who was born 1928 or before here? Anybody? Not quite, probably. I don't. I know you weren't. I've seen if you knew somebody. I I, I wasn't saying that. <laughs> wow. Eesh. Well. Thank you. Y'all have a good day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would not say you were that old. Honest. Honest. Um, wow. Uh, we do have a couple members, though, that are older than, than that, right? Yeah, we got four in their 90s. So, yeah, so that's 86, I think. So, anyway, if you were born before 1928, you're older than sliced bread. <laughs> Yeah, so you know that you're the best thing since sliced bread? Well, I'm before sliced bread, so what's that say? Um, some of you might be able to say. Anyway, um, Harvard uh, is older than calculus. The college, Harvard, the University of Harvard is older than the discipline of calculus. Uh, Cleopatra lived closer to the building of the first pizza hut than to the building of the first pyramids. So think about that in terms of time. Um, this one got me. The last use of the guillotine in France, you know, the guillotine happened after the release of Star Wars. So, yeah. Um, Overwright was still alive when the sound barrier was broken. Okay. Um, and some small populations of woolly mammoths we're still we're, um, around a 1,000 years after the pyramids were built. Time's a hard concept to get your mind around sometimes. Some of the things we think or we perceive or we understand um, just don't really happen when we think they do or when we think they should sometimes. And today I want to deal with the issue of time just a little bit in terms of kind of understanding God's timing. Because I know for me, there are times when I question it. 
when I question God's timing. When I look at situations in my life, there are some times when I think things happen too early. There are times when I think things happen too late. And I struggle with that. I struggle with trusting God. I struggle with seeing His plan in the midst of it all. And as we continue our journey through the Bible, we come to that section, that moment in the Bible, where I think Israel had those questions as well. It's that transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The last prophet of the Old Testament, uh, time-wise, is, is also the last prophet in our canon, Malachi. Malachi lived somewhere around 450 B.C. Uh, he's the last word spoken. Um, and you don't really hear again in a significant way from God for another 400 years. And while we know that God was still very much active uh, in Israel, the, the stories of the Maccabees and so forth tell us about some things that happened within Israel's history during that 400 years, it, it's largely addressed, it's largely called the period of silence, the era of silence. And if you're Israel living in that time, I'm sure there are many moments where you're thinking, where's God's timing? Where's the Messiah? When's that all going to happen? How's that going to play out? We haven't heard from a prophet in 400 years. When is God going to speak again? And I think in looking at how God worked in that time and how God worked in that situation, perhaps, hopefully, we can come away with some observations about our own lives and about God's timing in that and how that works out. And so let's take a look at, at some, some key passages in the Old and New Testament that kind of reflect upon on, on this reality. And, and I want us to start in, in Malachi chapter 4 with the recognition that the king, that is God, does have a plan that is consistent, that is necessary, and that is focused. The last, Some of the last words of Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament as we have it uh, listed, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Here as Malachi speaks, he, he speaks uh, about this, this expectation, this expectation that's been on the mind of Israel, certainly since the exile and, and probably well before that, of God sending his king, his Messiah, to, to reign and to rule and to, to enact the, the, the things, the good things, the wonderful things that are outlined throughout the Old Testament as, as part of the coming of the Messiah. And, and he starts this with, with the words, behold. And whenever, again, whenever you see that, that word in Scripture, or perhaps your translation renders it look, or something like that, the, the idea is pay attention. What I'm about to say here is significant. What's about to happen here is dramatic. It's a shift. It's a turn. It's a, it's a 
It's, a, it's almost unexpected in some ways. It's certainly important for you, and you need to take note of it. And so he says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet. I will send this one who's going to make ready the day of the Lord. He's going to make ready the, the coming of the Messiah. He's going to make ready the moment we've all been looking forward to, the, the moment we've all been hoping for. And, and when he comes, he's going, to, he's going to change relationships. And so we see here that, that this is part of the plan. The plan is consistent. It's the plan that God started back before creation, where we started. As he looked into history, as he looked into reality, and he saw the need, he, he what? He foreordained his son to come. Before the very foundations of the earth, Jesus was coming to save us. Scripture tells us. And then as creation happened and the fall occurred, you see the, the resistance of the creation against their creator, and the creator saying, no, no, I'm not going to let you go. I, I have a plan. I have a plan. And he expressed that plan to, to Abraham in his call. He expressed that plan to David in the covenant. He expressed that plan to Moses and to so many other leaders. I have a plan. I, I have something that's in the works. And here, as he comes to the end of the Old Testament, he says what? He says, that plan is still there. Why? Because that plan is necessary. If that plan doesn't play out, if that plan doesn't occur, then what? The land will be destroyed. Utter destruction, which is, which is a picture of, not just the land, it's a picture of humanity. It's a picture of the ones that God has been trying to reach. If that plan doesn't play out, y'all are without hope. It's essentially what Malachi is saying here. If, if God's plan that he's expressed over the centuries doesn't happen, that's bad things. Bad things. And it's focused. It's focused in on the Messiah. It's focused in on our relationship with God. And so he wraps up his prophetic word with, with this truth, this one who's coming. The Elijah that he's speaking of here, we know from Jesus' words in, in Luke, is John the Baptist, the one who came to prepare the way. But it still begs the question, why did he wait? At this point, we don't exactly know the timing of creation and Noah and all that, but we, do, we can date Abraham with a high level of assurance, somewhere around 2500 B.C., 25 to 2000. So what, we're 2500 years at least, at a minimum, into his plan. What is he waiting for? 
Well, we turn to the first book of the New Testament. Just a page turn in your Bibles. Not that difficult, not, not looking uh, real hard for the next passage we come across. And we come to the first of the Gospels. And here we see a plan that is thorough in its response. Begins in verse 1. It's an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's interesting that this phrase, the, the book of genealogy or an account of genealogies is almost word for word the wording that you find in Genesis 2-4, these are the generations. See, it's the exact same wording. If you go with the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that happened about 200 years before Mount Matthew writes his here. Matthew is essentially quoting Genesis 2-4. These are the generations. He's linking God's act of the coming of the Messiah with God's act of creation. He's telling us. He's revealing to us. It's part of the plan. And as we looked at before, he... He introduces us to Jesus, the Christ. Jesus means what? It means Yahweh saves. The Messiah. That's how. That's how Yahweh saves. By sending the anointed one. And this anointed one who's coming is, is what? He is a descendant of David. David who was what? He was a conquering king, certainly, but he was... What else? He was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who, despite a capacity to to very uh, to sin extremely, um, I don't know if I want to say extremely well. Say he was a good sinner. I don't think that's what I want to say necessarily, but I think you get the point. David committed some very heinous acts. He killed people out of selfishness, not in warfare, out of selfishness. He betrayed his children. He committed adultery. He was, as much as any of us, very capable of sin. And yet Scripture calls him a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he understood the meaning of repentance. He understood that you don't blame other people for your sins. You don't look to excuses for your sins. You simply lay them before God and you change your behavior going forward. That's repentance. And so Jesus, this one who's coming, is, is what? He's a descendant of this, of this one who, who understood the nature of the relationship between man and God. That yes, man fails, but God is merciful. He's also what? He's also the descendant of Abraham. And what was God's promise to Abraham? Through you, through your seed, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here he is, the seed, the promised one. He is, he's connected in this significant, in this, this wonderful way to God's plan. But you also see 
the thoroughness of God's response here in, in the women that are listed. And we've covered this before, but again, just to, just to highlight that. Picking up in verse 3, right in the middle of the uh, genealogy. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, the reason this is so distinctive is in genealogies, the wives are never listed. Go back and look at Chronicles. Go back and, and look at others. There's a, a few exceptions to that, but by and large, the women are not listed. And in Matthew's genealogy, he doesn't list all the women. He doesn't list all the mothers. He just lists these four. Now, why these four? What, what is it he's, he's trying to, to highlight? What is it he's trying to, to focus on? Well, if you, you look at these, these women, you see some, some truths here. You see, number one, you see some women who were part of uh, marginalized situations. Circumstances where even in their own cultures, they would have been on the outside looking in. You see as well that these four women are all Gentiles. All four of them. Tamar was a Canaanite, Rahab was a Canaanite, Ruth was a Moabite, and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, was a Hittite. They're all four Gentiles. God is pointing out here that this one who comes has come to, to save every nation. He is a descendant of every nation, and so he has come, as Matthew says later on in the chapter, to his own people, to save his own people. And who are his own people? It's a Gentile as well as the Jew. He's come to rescue them. He's come to restore equity. He's come to restore positions. And so Matthew highlights that. The plan is very much at work here. And then you see that the plan is divine in its response. In verse 16, it says in Jacob, father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The phrase there, uh, of whom Jesus was born, that's feminine. Makes it very clear there, even in the genealogy, before he gets to the story, before we get to Luke and, and the, the full disclosure of the virgin status of Mary, you, Matthew makes it very clear here that Jesus was the offspring of this woman. It doesn't say of whom in terms of Joseph. It says of whom in terms of Mary in the Greek there. But then you have the what was born is what's called passive voice. And it's a divine passive. It was a work of God. It was a work of, of God in this moment. Jesus is God's response. He's God's plan. 
He thoroughly responds to everything that happened in the Old Testament. He thoroughly responds to everything that's happened in the world between the Gentile and the, the Jew. He thoroughly responds to our deepest needs by what? Bringing God to earth. But the question is still, why did he wait this long? Why did he wait? For that, we turn to Galatians chapter 4. And we see here that his plan is perfect in its timing. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that phrase there, fullness of time had come, it means simply this, when the time was right, when the time was perfect. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a geek, a nerd, I guess you'd say, and I love Lord of the Rings. I love the books. I love the movies. And one of the opening exchanges there is, is a Frodo looking at Gandalf and says, you're late. And Gandalf says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives exactly when he intends to. And I know that Tolkien and, and, and so forth was very much driven by Scripture in his composition of Lord of the Rings, the images that he used and so forth. And can't help but wonder if, if part of that feeds into that whole exchange. God is never late, nor is he early. He arrives, he acts exactly when he intends to. And it is God's perfect timing. Now, as a, as a historian, I love to, to look at exactly what's involved there and what's involved in terms of that timing. So if you'll allow me just to few moments to, to kind of outline some of the things that, that seem to have needed to have happened in history for the timing to be right. And they really play out in terms of, of the three kingdoms that are at work between Malachi and Matthew. Three empires that were in power in those, those eras, that they controlled the world during that era. The first are the Persians. The Persians were in control when Malachi expressed uh, his prophecy. They had been in control for, for many years at that point. And the Persians were important because the Persians, in how they worked and how they interacted with individuals, they changed, they transformed the way governments dealt with the people they conquered. Okay, Up to the Persians, whether we're talking about the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Hittites or whomever, up to the Persians, when you were a conquering uh, kingdom, you would go in and you would basically wipe them out. And you would take those populations and you would enslave them. And sometimes you put your people in there. Or sometimes you take them away from their land. And that's how you function. That's how you operated. There wasn't a lot of trust. There wasn't a lot of hope. There wasn't a lot of encouragement for any sort of growth on the part of nations, smaller nations, or the people that lived in them, because the outside powers, the, the greater powers, were so imposing that they, they kept any of that ingenuity from really working. It was about them. 
But when the Persians came to power, they said, you know what, we're going to do something different. We're going to take the nations that we conquer, the nations that we um, are, are over, and we're going to be benevolent to them. We're going to be kind to them. Uh, the, the, the second temple that was built during the time of Haggai and Zechariah, you know who paid for that? Persia paid for that. They gave the funds, they gave the, the, the tools, they gave the instruments that were necessary to rebuild the temple. A few years later, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah come around, time to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You know who paid for that? Persia. They, repaid, they paid for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. They created a new way for the, the, the empires to relate to the nations. And so you have them portrayed throughout the post-exilic Old Testament narratives in a very positive light. Whether we're talking about Esther actually being, what, a queen of, in the Persian kingdoms? She married the Persian king? To any number of other reflections throughout the narratives, we have Persia creating a different mindset, a different outlook of how the underlings can function, how they can operate, how they can carry out their mission. Well, the Persians were followed by the Greeks. The Greeks, in particular, Alexander the Great, conquered the world very quickly. And one of the things that Alexander the Great did as he conquered the world was he spread what's known as Hellenism. And Hellenism is a, is a way of thinking, it's a way of speaking, it's a way of, of viewing the world. It's a totally different way of viewing reality. It totally changed how people understood existence, not just not just you know languages or, or regime change. The very thought life changed. One of the examples I give to students typically to kind of help them understand the difference, and I kind of hesitate, hesitate to do this with lunch so close, but I'm going to do, I'm going to risk it anyway. Okay, if I ask you to describe a perfect red delicious apple. Every one of you just got a picture in your mind. Every one of you. It's, 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 it's an apple, shaped like an apple. It's got the apple shape, okay, uniform on both sides, top, bottom, all of that. It's red all the way around. It probably has a little sparkle on one corner of it, you know. Got the stem, one leaf or two, depending upon what you consider perfection in that particular regard. But you got a picture of an apple. And if I asked you to draw, and we were all great artists all of a sudden, and I asked you to draw that apple, I guarantee you all those apples would look almost identical. Okay. That's Hellenism. That's how Greeks thought, and that's how they've taught us to think. If I were living in 500 B.C., before the Greeks had carried out their, their task, their role, and I was speaking to a bunch of Israelites, and I said, describe for me a perfect red delicious apple. Assuming they knew what a red delicious apple was, they would say, it's one that's ready to eat. Be that simple. They wouldn't get a picture in their mind. They wouldn't have an ideal that they would envision. That ideal that we envision grows out of Platonism, which is part of Hellenism. Okay. Now, it's hard for us on this side to imagine that side. But that's how life changed. That's how experience changed. That's how reality was redefined. And so when 
when Alexander carried Hellenism with him, what did he do? He spread that way of thinking to every nation that he encountered. And so now, instead of one nation thinking of reality this way and one nation thinking of it another way, now everybody's imagining reality through the same lens. Everybody's understanding things through this concept of perfection. It had 300 years to settle in before Christ came because Alexander did his work about 330 B.C. But not only that, Alexander, because everybody's thinking the same, what's very close to the way you think is the way you talk. And so Koine Greek becomes the language that everybody is speaking and writing. Yeah, they still have their own dialects, Aramaic, Hebrew, so forth. But everybody as well is now speaking and writing Greek. About 60 B.C., you have a new kingdom, new group on the horizon. Pompey marches into, General Pompey marches into Jerusalem and captures Jerusalem of 60 B.C. And now you have Rome, the third of these kingdoms. And Rome, even before it was an empire, when it was still a republic, carried out what's known as Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome in which they enforced and carried out a very strict understanding of how kingdoms worked and how those underneath them operated. They, weren't, they didn't try to destroy those cultures. Those were transformed somewhat by Hellenism, but they, they also kind of followed the Persian rule of just keep people happy. And they imposed their, their will. And, and they, they built infrastructures. They built roads. And they helped build new shipping techniques and abilities so people could get through the Mediterranean. And you've heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. That's part of the Pax Romana, where they, they built these roads across the, the continents to, to get from capital city to capital city. Some of those roads, which I think speaks to our culture today, some of those roads are still drivable today. They're two, over 2,000 years old, and you can still drive. I've driven on some of them. Okay. Our roads today, we got potholes. You can't drive on roads that were put in five years ago. <laughs> Rome brought everything together. They, they made everything possible. And so what do you have? you have? You have this new way of relating to the empire that's over you. You have this new way of thinking and speaking, and you have this, this capacity within the republic and then the empire to spread the word. All of that took place in the years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of that made possible that when Jesus said, Go ye into all the earth, make disciples, made it possible. So that when you have the conversion of people take place at Pentecost, they can go home and they can talk to their people. And as Paul's writing his letters and Luke's writing his Gospels, and Matthew's writing his Gospels, and so forth. They do what? They write it in Greek, and everybody everywhere can read it. Something that just 200 years before would not have been possible. The message could not have spread. They would have, the disciples would not have known how to speak to those people, and even if you have a miracle similar to Pentecost where God lets them speak in the language of the people they're ministering to, how do you get that message in written form into something that you can leave with the people? 
You're going to watch, instead of Paul taking three missionary journeys, he may have gotten one in. Because he would have had to spend so much time with each city that he stopped in, giving them the written text. But because it's all in Greek, he can just leave it with them. They can read it. They can learn it. They can understand it. The timing was perfect. Forty years later, 70 A.D., Jerusalem's destroyed by Rome. If Jesus had come after that, you've lost that connection to Jerusalem and Israel. It was the perfect window for God to act, to see the gospel spread, to see the, 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 the actions take place. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 says this, and although Habakkuk's talking about the prophecy, the vision of Babylonia, Babylonia destroying Jerusalem, it, it has applications beyond that in terms of God's work in our lives. It says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It won't delay. God, in his interaction with us, works in the perfect time. And although we may struggle with that sometimes, and maybe we think it should have happened earlier, maybe we think it should have happened later, maybe we, we, we envision that things that way, we need to, again, reorient our minds to, to think of things in terms of what God is actually doing. Sometimes he hesitates to increase our faith. When I think of Abraham's offering of Isaac, and I think I talked about this before, it's interesting to me that it's three days' journey to the place where he's supposed to offer Isaac. Why did God say three days? Why, why did God not say, pick your son right now, right now, and offer him to me? Instead of this three-day journey. Three days of going to bed thinking about this, this whole action. Three days of, of walking with Isaac beside you. Three days of looking at this boy that you love, maybe more than life itself, knowing what God has asked you to do. It was three days because it was faith being grown. It was faith being matured. Anybody can do something in a split-second decision without thinking about it. That's not faith. But when you have to think about it, when you have to contemplate it, when you have to consider it and the ramifications and all these other things, it's then that you really learn how to lean into God and, and trust God and walk with God. So sometimes, quote, God's delays are so that we can grow in our faith on how to relate to Him, how to walk with Him. Sometimes it's to, it's to broaden our vision. How, how, do we, how do we view God? How do we understand God? How do we understand how He works? I've shared before that when it came to, to Jonathan's diagnosis, you know, I, I, was, I was at that time, I was already a seminary professor. I, was, I pastored for many years. I was, I was what I would say was a faithful Christian. And I had certain understandings of how God worked. And those ways of understanding how God worked, I don't, I don't believe they were wrong. 
But I tell you what, in that journey with Jonathan and, and the things that we've experienced over the 19 years since then and so forth, my vision, my understanding of who God is and how He acts has broadened dramatically. So sometimes He hesitates or waits or holds off to tell us, your vision of me is too small. Your understanding of me is too minuscule. Step back and get a bigger picture. Scripture says what? His ways are not our ways. Well, how do we gain an understanding into His ways if things happen to us immediately? Think of it in terms of, of raising kids, or being a teacher for kids or whatever. If they get immediate gratification with things all the time, at what? That causes problems when you're trying to carry out any kind of activity, right? And I think our teachers would certainly testify to that, that a part of the struggle they have with their kids today is because they have been given a life of immediate gratification. And they don't understand the concept of weight. And so the weight sometimes is to increase our faith, increase our vision. It's sometimes to increase our testimony. Mm. I love to hear stories of how people imagined something was going to happen a certain way. And God said, nope, not yet. Nope, not yet. And then it happened, and they were overwhelmed by what happened. They, 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 what they experienced, what they enjoyed, what they encountered was so much more than they imagined previously. The weight played a role in the event. And it increased their testimony of how good God is. That in the waiting and in the carrying out, God was there. In, in, the, in the pause, in the delay, in the, in the, in the questions, and in the, ultimately in the answer, God was there. And you get to hear about how great He is. And then sometimes I think he causes us to wait to increase our compassion. Again, a, a person who is experiencing immediately, immediate gratification has almost no capacity for empathy. I want it now. I don't care what it costs you. I don't care what it means to you. I don't know what. I don't care what's going on with you. I want it now. We've all encountered those children. We've all encountered those adults. No capacity to wait at all. No compassion for what others might be going through. How short do we sometimes get with waiters, waitresses? I, I love the fact that I remember talking about this the other day that, you know, we, we, we hold in our hand phones nowadays. Okay? And, and, there is a, if you look at a, at a full page ad from Radio Shack in 1991, it had 15 items on the page. All 15 of those items now fit in our phone and are in our phone. All 15 of them. Okay. So we have this phone. It can play music for us. Any, music, any song I want. Any song I stink and want. I can, I can put it in, and there it is. 
I mean, I remember sitting in front of radios just hoping for them to play the song I was hoping for them to play. So maybe I could get a, a cassette recording of it because I was too poor, too cheap, I don't know which, to go out and actually buy the, the artist's cassette or album. Uh, so I sit in front of the radio trying to do it. And now I could just say, I want this song. And I could play it over and over again if I want. Or I could skip it halfway through. Okay. And we talk to people. You know, I, I, I've, I've gotten on my phone and, and had a video, you know, Dick Tracy type stuff. A video right there of I'm talking to somebody. Some of y'all don't know who Dick Tracy is. That's okay. Um, uh, t- talking to people who are on the other side of the world. And I, I got a picture of them. You know, when I traveled to, to Poland and Macedonia and so forth um, and, and, and was wanting to contact with my church, we, we set up the video cameras so that I could talk to my church while I was there in Macedonia, other side of the world. And what did it cost me? Nothing but the regular cost of my phone or the internet or whatever. It was not any extra cost or anything. And yet what? You you enter the you enter the, the I think what it's called at the moment. You 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 enter the internet, I can't think of what it's called though, on your phone. And it delays just a second. The, the page doesn't load quite as quickly as you want it to load. And you say, what? This stupid thing. I can't believe how slow this thing is. Okay. You realize what you're, what you're getting, what you're looking at there, whether it's on your computer screen or your phone or whatever, is tons of information. Tons of information. Information that if we're written down in books would not fit in this room. And you're upset because it takes 30 seconds instead of five. I'm the same way. I'm not judging you with that. That's me too. Okay. We've lost our society. Our culture has lost compassion. And I think part of the reason we've lost compassion is because we've lost any sense of time. Everything is so instantaneous that if somebody's not over the hurt or somebody's not where we think they should be in their development, we ignore the hurt. Sometimes God's timing for us and His delay in, in, in carrying things out as we would see it is simply to teach us to love one another and to love others who are going through that hurt like we are. To see their pain. And to realize it takes time to get through these things. Second Peter three nine. Peter's talking about the second coming, but I, again, I think the passage has broader application in terms of God's time. And he says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." Think about that in terms of, obviously, the second coming. Why hasn't God come back? I sure would love Jesus to crack that sky wide open and come right now. I'd love that. But you know what? If, it, if his delay means even one more person comes to a saving knowledge and experiences eternity that wouldn't have because he came earlier or later or whatever, I'm glad to wait to have another brother, another sister 
who's able to enjoy eternity with me. Because God delayed just a little bit more. And in my own life, in my own experience, I remember when my dad died. My dad was the middle of, of ten children, right smack in the middle. And he was the first to die of all his siblings. And I remember my brother preaching the message and him saying that he, he didn't know why dad had to be the first to go or why dad went so early and those sorts of things. But he said, I know my dad, and if his going early brings any one of his siblings or anyone else to Christ, he'd gladly gone. And that night, my uncle accepted Christ. God's timing is not always what we might wish it to be. But it's always perfect. And we need to grow in our trust and in our appreciation of that. And to see all the benefits of His delays as we grow in faith, as we grow in compassion, as we grow in understanding and perspective, and as we see those who are in our lives that we love very much come to a saving knowledge of who Christ is. And if there's someone here this morning who's never experienced Christ, who's never had that moment where they've Truly experienced it. I'm not talking about prayer. I'm not talking about getting dunked. I'm not talking about coming to church. If you never experienced that time where you really entered into a relationship with God, God wants that relationship. And I'm here to tell you there is no more perfect time than right now to respond to that, to accept His invitation relationship and hope. Those of you who are here this morning and you're hurting, you're, you're struggling with things, you're wondering about God's time, let me just say, I know it's hard. I've walked where, you've walked, where you're walking. I've been where you are. God's timing really is perfect. His word tells us that. And we can count on his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for these people. I thank you for each person here. And I thank you for your timing, God. Even when it's hard for me to, to understand it, even when it's hard for me to, to accept it, God, I thank you for your timing because I know it's perfect. I know you see things. I know you understand things. I know you are part of things that, that I can't even begin to imagine. So I trust you in that. But God, I also understand the hurt is real. And I ask this morning for, for healing and for help and encouragement to, to people who are waiting or people who are wondering or people wondering why things happened when they did and not later. God, I just pray for your understanding, your peace for each of them. God, I especially want to lift up anyone here who's never come to that moment of 
of salvation, that moment where they entered into relationship with you. God, I pray that you would draw them in your power and that they would respond in faith and come to see just how wonderful your timing can be in a life that's surrendered to you. Lord, whatever decision it is that needs to be made today, Lord, I pray that you'd lay it on our hearts and that we would be responsive to that. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.